All right, good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. And some of you are thinking, who's this guy on the stage? Uh, Pastor Allen is usually up here, but he lets me get up here every now and then. So uh, glad to be able to get in the Word with all of you this morning. Uh, Philippians 2, we will have the words to what we're reading on the screen, but we do encourage you to bring your copy of God's Word as well. So if you're a guest or maybe you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks, we are in a study right now, and it's actually on a document. And that might sound weird to say in a church, but we are studying a document known as the Apostles' Creed. Now, before we read the section of the creed that we're going to be covering today, I want to first explain the purpose of a creed. So here at Downtown Church, our authority for truth is not based on a creed. Okay, There is no creed that this church is based on. That is not our authority for truth. And our authority for truth is not even on a mission statement. Our authority for truth is right here, the Word of God. This is what we stand on. Amen, church? So this is our authority for truth. That being said, creeds can be helpful. I remember when I was a kid, uh, my dad would pull out his keys And I would look at his key ring, and I'd be like, man, I want keys like that. Look at all those keys on that key ring. And here's the thing I've learned is more keys means more responsibilities, right? But when I was a kid, nonetheless, I'd look at all those keys. Now, here's the thing. If somebody just handed you a bunch of keys and said, hey, use these keys, but don't lose these keys, and they just hand you the keys, what's going to happen if you just got a bunch of individual keys? You're going to lose them, right? But if you have this handy-dandy little device known as a key ring, it kind of binds it all together. It helps you to quickly access these individual keys that are important, and that's kind of what a creed does. A creed sort of helps us quickly access some individual core fundamental beliefs that we hold near and dear in the Christian faith. So uh, with that being said, let's look at the first two sections of the Apostles' Creed. It will be up on the screen. It says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Okay, so that's a a lot of keys, if you will. That's a lot of beliefs, but once again, when we learn things like the Apostles' Creed, it helps us to quickly access these truths. Now, there's a lot that we could talk about from those two sections, but one particular, very short concise statement is really crucial for the Christian faith. Let's look at the statement that we're going to be focusing on today. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. The lordship of Jesus Christ is one of the most important doctrines in all of the scripture. It's what we stand on. It's what we recognize as followers of Jesus. And 
If I can be honest with you, as I've been studying for this and as I've been reading through the Gospels and through the Scriptures about the Lordship of Christ, I've been so encouraged, and I hope you are as well today. Uh, So with that understanding, we're going to be looking at a passage that's really all about the Lordship of Jesus. And so we're going to be in Philippians 2. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So my wife, Allison, and I, we've got three kids, and our youngest, uh, her name is Abigail, and Abigail is four years old, and about a year ago, if she was eating food that had any kind of spice to it or any sauce with a kick to it, she'd go, whew, that's powerful. That's what this is. Okay, this is one of those powerful passages of scriptures. It's got a kick to it if you pay attention to what's being said here. And actually, the early church had a particular fondness to these verses that we just read. So earlier, we just sang what we would call a classic hymn. How marvelous, right? How wonderful. We know those words if you've grown up in the church. Maybe uh, for you, your favorite classic hymn is How Great Thou Art or Amazing Grace. For the early church, this was one of their How Great Thou Arts. This was one of their amazing graces. They would actually sing the words that we just read and what we're going to study this morning. It was a hymn of praise to God focusing on Jesus. Now, Paul, this is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. And at the time he wrote this, there was somebody reigning over the Roman Empire named Emperor Nero. Maybe you remember him from your history classes, but... Nero was an interesting character. So Nero had a leadership complex of sorts. Uh, He wanted everyone to consider him a living God. He wanted everyone throughout the Roman Empire to bow to Nero, to submit to Nero's leadership, to worship Nero. And so Paul knows that Nero is trying to put that over the whole Roman Empire, including the Christians, the church. And so Paul counters that. He writes in this letter, and specifically in the verses that we just read, he lets them know, hey, there is a living God. There is a Lord, but it's not Nero. There's a king of kings. There is a Lord of lords. There is someone who reigns supreme, who is Lord of all, as we just sang earlier, and it's not Nero. So uh, he sets the record straight. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at four fundamental facts about the lordship of Jesus Christ. The first one that we're going to look at is what we're going to call the realm of his lordship. Now, I want to 
uh, prep you, uh, we're going to be here most of the message, okay? Because I want us to make sure we understand the depth of the realm of the lordship of Jesus Christ. So let's look at uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 and 6. reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay. There's a lot of people out there that think that Jesus began to exist at the point where he was born. Little baby Jesus in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's when Jesus came into existence. But that's not the truth. In fact, Jesus, first subpoint, Jesus was Lord before history. Jesus was Lord before history. So when a child is conceived, that is when that person comes into existence. That's when we came into existence, but not so with Jesus. He was Lord before history because, as Paul just said, he was in the form of God. John's gospel talks about this also. Look at John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and don't miss this, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. And then a few verses later, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Before Jesus came to this world as that cute, chubby little baby. He was Lord. He was with God. He was God. And he was in the form of God. The Gospels teach us a name for Jesus, Emmanuel, which means, amen, God with us. We also see in this letter that Paul wrote to the church that Jesus wasn't just Lord before history. He was also Lord when he stepped into history. Let's look at verse 7 together. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Okay, so track with me. Jesus was God. He was in the form of God. And then Jesus comes down to this broken, sin-filled world, and he did something crazy. He took on the form of a servant. God took on the form of man. Amazing. Emmanuel, God with us. And while Jesus was here on this earth, we have account after account after account in the gospel accounts of the lordship of Christ on display. So over the last week, I've really been fascinated with two chapters in the New Testament. Mark chapters 4 and 5. And if you're up for a little reading this afternoon or this evening, I would really encourage you. Go home, sit in your rocking chair, that's my spot, on the back porch, a little cup of coffee, and read Mark chapters 4 and 5. And just marvel at the lordship of Jesus on display. I do want to give you a quick rundown of what you'll read if you read that. In those chapters, we learn that Jesus was Lord over disaster. Okay, maybe you've heard this story. So at the end of Mark 4, Jesus is on a boat with his disciples. And while he's on the boat with his disciples, this really bad storm kicks up. And the disciples are terrified. In fact, the scriptures say that they thought that they were perishing. 
Which is interesting to me because we're talking about guys that are on boats for a living. They're fishermen. They've seen a storm or two. And yet they think they're about to die. That's how bad the storm was. What was Jesus doing while that storm was raging? He was asleep, right? He was a hard sleeper. Uh, And Jesus was wiped. Uh, If you read the verses prior to that, you'll see that Jesus was traveling. He was doing ministry. He was preaching. He was teaching. He was doing miracles. Power was going out from him. He was wiped. And so the the disciples go to Jesus on the boat, and I I envision them kind of shaking him like, Jesus, wake up and listen to this conversation. Mark chapter 4, verse 38. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, talking about Jesus. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You ever ask God something like that? Let's be honest. Yeah, we have. You're in that storm. You're in some chaotic stuff in your life. And you look up at God a little frustrated. And you're like, don't you care? Don't you care about what I'm going through? Can I encourage you? He does. I know because his word tells us that. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We live in the most anxiety-ridden culture that I can remember, maybe, that's ever existed. And we have been invited as the church, as children of God, take all of that stuff that is weighing you down and is burdening you and cast that on the Lord. Why? Because he cares He cares for you. And Jesus cared about these disciples so much, so he gets up from his slumber, from his nap, and he looks at the storm raging all around them, and he looks at the storm and speaks. Listen to what he says. Mark chapter 4, verse 39 reads, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. I love the word peace here. It can be good to do word studies. It might sound a little nerdy to you, but it's good. Uh, The word peace here is not like hippie peace, okay? This is talking about literally, and what I love about this is literally the word hush. Any parent understands that word, right? Or anyone that's had a parent understands that word hush. I actually envisioned Jesus waking up from his nap, kind of half asleep, and is like, I got this, guys. And he looks at the storm and says, hush. And you know what the storm did? It hushed. You know why the storm did that? Because he's Lord over disaster. Amen? He was also Lord over demons. So there's one account after another in these chapters. He was Lord over demons. So... The disciples and Jesus get off the boat on the eastern shores of Galilee. And they they come up into a graveyard, into like a tomb area. And this naked man starts running towards them. And I don't know what you would do if you saw a naked man running towards you. I got an idea or two. Mostly I'm getting out of there, right? I'm out. Peace, right? Jesus didn't run. In fact, he engages in conversation with this man. And we learn by reading those chapters that this man was a tormented man. He was a man with an unclean spirit, a demon. And we learn that he would actually uh, obviously tear off his clothes and people would try to bind him, tie him up, and he would break the bonds. And he would run up into the mountains and cry and weep. 
And he would take these sharp stones and cut himself over and over and over again. He was just miserable. And then he sees Jesus. Listen to what this man says to Jesus. Mark 5, 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Think about this scene. You've got this guy, a mortal man. You've got a demon inside of this man. They encounter Jesus. And what does the man with the demon do? Well, if you read the verse prior, he bows before Jesus. And then he begs Jesus, please, son of the most high God, please don't torment me. Who was in charge? Was it the man? Was it the demon? Absolutely not. They bowed before Jesus. And they begged him, please don't torment me. The conversation continues, and we find out it wasn't just one demon that was in this man. The scriptures say that there was a legion of demons, which is a term for thousands. Okay? Thousands of demons were in this one man. And Jesus being Lord over those demons, over the whole spiritual realm and physical realm, cast all of the demons out of this man and cast them into a herd of pigs over here on the hill. And they are all demon-possessed, and they all run down the steep bank into the water, drown, and die. How could Jesus do that? Unless he's Lord over demons, over the whole spiritual realm. Right after that, we learn that Jesus is Lord over disease. So after Jesus cast out those demons, here's what that guy started doing. That naked guy that was going up into the hills, he put on clothes. He started talking normally. He started talking and being grateful to Jesus. And so they go into town together. And everybody looks at this guy and they say, what's wrong with you? Wait, wait, no, what's right with you? How'd you end up like this? You're wearing clothes. You're talking. And instead of being impressed and encouraged and amazed at Jesus, instead, they were terrified. And they begged Jesus, please get out of here. Go away from us. And Jesus moves on, and that's because of this. Jesus only goes where he's invited, and he only stays where he's welcome. You might remember the passage in Revelation. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It doesn't say, Behold, I'm coming in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens that door and welcomes me in, I will come in and sup with him. King James, right? I will come in and fellowship with him. Jesus never throughout the scriptures forces anyone to love him. He never forces anyone to follow him. But he does offer that invitation. And that invitation is called the gospel. What Christ has done for us. What Christ has done for you. And that invitation is here today. Jesus leaves that man in that area, and he comes across another man named Jairus. So Jairus is a, a father, and he's got a young little girl, and his young little girl is really sick. She's on her deathbed. And so this father runs up to Jesus and says, will you please come heal my daughter? And Jesus, having compassion and love in his heart for that man, says yes. 
And he begins to follow Jairus to his house. But on the way there, the crowds are pressing in on Jesus. And there was one woman in the midst of that whole crowd who was dealing with something that was really hard for her. For 12 years, she's been hemorrhaging blood, had a discharge of blood, the Bible says. And it was very hard. There was no solution for her. There was no hope. And so she sees Jesus coming, and she knows. She knows that man. Jesus can do something about this. Jesus can heal me. And so I envision her pressing through the crowds, snaking her way through, and barely touching Jesus' garment, his outer garment. And immediately, Jesus stops, and he turns and he looks at the crowd, and he says, who touched me? Who touched my garment? And the disciples are over here like, you kidding? Everybody's touching you, Jesus. But this one woman steps out. And they make eye contact, and she knows it was her because she was instantly healed. And listen to what Jesus tells this woman. Mark 5, 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. I love that, daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This woman was instantly healed just by touching his garment, because Jesus is Lord over disease. One last example of his lordship I want to offer this morning. He was Lord over death. So they get to Jairus' home, the man with the young little girl, and there's a crowd that's gathered there in the house. And when Jairus and Jesus and his disciples arrive at the house, they come out and they say, Jairus, don't bother. You're too late. She's gone. Jesus walks up into the house and tells the crowd there, he said, she's not dead, she's just asleep. Jesus can say those kinds of things, right? So he tells them that, and they laugh. They mock him, they're like, we know what sleep is, she's not asleep, she's dead. Jesus gets everybody out of the house that doesn't have faith that he can heal this little girl. And so what you're left with is Jesus, Peter, James, John, the girl's parents, and a lifeless little girl, dead. He walks up to her, and the Bible says he tenderly takes her hand. I envision him kneeling at her bedside. And in Aramaic, the language Aramaic, he says, Talitha kum, which means little girl. I say to you, arise. Listen to what happens. Mark 5, 42. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Y'all, when I process that, and I think about that actually happened, that Jesus took a lifeless little girl's hand sitting by her bedside and says, Talitha kum, arise. And she does. How fascinating, how amazing that the Lord of all creation is Lord over death. What does all that mean? Those are cool stories, right? They're, they're, they're engaging, they're entertaining, but what does that mean for us? It means, church, that our Lord, our Savior, is Lord over everything and anyone that we face. 
Your Lord is Lord over everything that you can face, everything that you can encounter in this life. Be it disasters, the storms in your life. You know what Jesus can do if you call out to him? He can say, hush, and the circumstances in your life, hush. Or maybe he does what he did for Paul. He will give you grace to endure that affliction. He will help you to keep going. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Lord, over demonic forces, you might think that's all hocus-pocus, that there's a spiritual realm, spiritual warfare going on. Let me tell you something. The Bible talks about this. This wasn't just a back-in-Bible times issue. This is a present-day issue. The scriptures, specifically in Ephesians, say that there are rulers in darkness and authorities and principalities, which are names for a very organized army. And Satan is leading that army, and he has a strategy. And guess what? He's good. He's effective. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that to make you aware. But cling to this. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus is Lord over all of the demonic realm. Disease. Jesus is Lord over cancer. He's Lord over diabetes. He's Lord over autoimmune diseases. He's Lord over every physical ailment that we encounter. Now, does that mean that he will heal us physically every time we ask? No. But you know what he can And it's okay to ask. It really is. But we need to be okay with him saying no or not now. And sometimes the most gracious way he heals us is just by calling us home. Because that's way better, right? It's way better to be with him than here. The last one is the most comforting to me. He's Lord over death. Jesus said in the New Testament, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet, what's the rest? Shall he live. Though we die, yet shall we live. So all of this is under the realm of his lordship. He was lord before history. He was lord when he stepped into history. Very quickly, I'll touch on this. He will be lord after history, at the end of history. We're not going to have time to delve into this on a deep level, although you could easily preach on this for months. But in the book of Revelation, there's a scene in Revelation chapter 19 where Christ returns. And get this, he's not returning as a baby in a manger. He's returning as a conquering king, riding on his white horse with his armies behind him to wipe out Satan and all of his demonic forces. So we talked about the realm of his lordship. Let's now look to the right of his lordship. You might be asking yourself the question, what right does Jesus have to be the Lord over my life? Well, Romans 14 answers that question. Look at Romans 14, verse 9. It's up on the screen. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Two reasons I'll offer for why Jesus has the right to be the Lord over your life. One, he died. Jesus died for you. He died to purchase your salvation. 
Let me say that again. Let that sink in. Christ died for you. As Jesus hung on that cross and he took his last breath and he died, his sinless blood made payment. He bought us with a price. But he didn't stay dead. Amen? Easter Sunday is coming up. By the way, Jesus is alive today too, okay? But we celebrate that there. That's okay. He lived, right? Look at this verse again. For to this end Christ died and lived again. He rose to give us everlasting life. And so death is not the end. Amen, church? It's not. We sang about that just a moment ago. Death is the turning of a page. It's when we walk on into eternity. If we live a long life in this world, maybe you live 100 years. And you're like, man, that's a long time. It is. But when you think about eternity, it's a whole lot longer. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Eternity. So, the realm of his lordship, the right of his lordship, let's last look at the rules of his lordship. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in this text, there are two what we could call rules about how we respond to the lordship of Jesus. One rule is this, unconditional submission. Unconditional submission. And two, unconditional confession. Look at the first part of verse 11 again. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you are an underliner in your Bible type person, underline that and then underline it again. Jesus, present tense, is Lord. Not was, is. Jesus is Lord. A lot of times in the church we say things like, have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? And I've said it before myself, but that's really not accurate. The truth is, a Christian isn't somebody who comes to Jesus and says, you know what, I like you. I'm going to make you the Lord of my life. No. A Christian is someone who comes to Jesus and they recognize who he is. They recognize that there's no one like him. They recognize that he is truly Lord and master of all. And then they respond. They bow. They submit. And they confess. Jesus is Lord. I believe that so much so that my life will follow after that confession. Something worth noting in this passage. Look at verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow where? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Here's what Paul's getting at there. Every person that has ever existed and every person that will ever exist will do these two things. Every person throughout history, every person today and in the future will bow. They will confess. Whether they are in heaven 
whether they are here on the earth or even if they're under the earth, hell. Every person will. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone will be saved, but it does mean that all of us, all of mankind, will respond to the lordship of Jesus because he's worthy. Now, the Bible does teach us if we will bow in this life, if we will confess that Jesus is Lord in this life, we will be saved. We'll be with him for all eternity. I'll share with you one more story very quickly. In the Gospels, uh, there was a man who came up to Jesus. This one wasn't naked. And the guy walks up to Jesus, and he bows before him. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so he's bowing before Jesus, and Jesus looks at him, and the Bible says that Jesus looks at him with love in his heart, and he tells this man, go and sell everything you have. Don't worry, you'll have treasure in heaven. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then come follow me. You might know the story. What does the man do? He didn't sell everything he had. He walked away. He got up from that bowing posture, and he sadly walked away because the guy was loaded. He was rich. Jesus lovingly pointed out the one thing that would hold him back from truly living as if Jesus is Lord. He bowed his knee. He did that much, but he didn't make that confession. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you have bowed your knee, so to speak. You come to church. You, you try to acknowledge Jesus in some ways. But maybe you've never made that confession. Maybe you've never actually lived in light of the truth that Jesus is Lord. If that's you, I encourage you to make that commitment today. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and the band's going to come on up. We're going to open up the altar at this time. We call down front here the altar. And maybe for you, it would be helpful to take that physical posture of bowing before Jesus today. Or maybe just to call on him and ask for help. We would love to pray with you. Or maybe today you need to make that confession. Lord Jesus, there's truly no one like you. And Lord, as we reflect on your lordship, may we not just be entertained. May we not just think they're interesting stories. May we live in light of truth. Lord, if there's anyone here today that realizes I'm lost, I have never confessed that Jesus is Lord. I pray that you would draw them to yourself today. I pray that you would weigh heavily on them conviction of your spirit that they might respond to truth. We love you. We give you praise. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand, and if you would, let's sing.